Our current sermon and worship series has us in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the English and Greek title of the fifth book of the Bible. The Hebrew title for this book is Words, the words of Moses. The book consists almost entirely of addresses and a song and a benediction by this momentous figure, arguably the second most important person in the Bible after our Lord Jesus. And author Philip Yancey envisions Moses prepared to deliver the speeches of Deuteronomy in this way. The old man clutches his robe and shivers in spite of the desert heat. Assistants help him scrabble up the tallest rock. Before him, stretching all the way to the horizon, are Israelites. He pauses to let the cheers of the crowd die down. His eyes lock on a few anonymous faces, so young, so innocent. None of them has a single memory of the glories of Egypt, the land of pyramids and palaces and chariots. These desert kids know only the rigors of Sinai, scorpions, vipers, blazing heat, cold nights, sandstorms, and the endless search for water. None of their parents have survived, save two. The rest proved useless. He dragged them out of Egypt only to find they had kept Egypt inside them. Now he faces their eager young descendants, a nation intact but with its individual cells replaced. Children, that's what they are, mere children. He'd give anything to lead them across the river into the land he's been crowing about for 40 years. It won't work, he knows. Instead, he'll die here, maybe even today. He's gathered them together to say farewell. They have heard stories from their parents, he knows, the same parents who grumbled, complained, and outright rebelled against his leadership. This is his last chance to set the record straight, to write the blame and the credit, to get history down, not just for these children, but for all to follow, for all posterity. Moses' eyes, covered with cataracts, are the color of clotted milk. Eighty years in the desert have carved walrus wrinkles across his face. He can barely hear. The sounds of the multitude blend together in a low, irritating hum. Joshua and Caleb trusted associates, have quieted the throng and are motioning for him to begin. They've arranged for shouters to repeat his words, projecting them out so everyone can hear. Speak slowly, they advise. Take your time. But as he begins to speak, his voice cracks and the old stutter starts up again. Moses is the oldest person any of the Israelites have seen, the only truly ancient person among them, nearly twice the age of Joshua and Caleb. With his snow-white hair and flowing beard, he seems more mythological creature than man. He has dominated their lives from birth. They've heard how he strode past guards in the great Pharaoh's palace and surprised the ruler who was once his playmate. The plagues, so traumatic at the time, over the years have become the fodder for jokes. Frogs jumping through the kitchen, gnats and flies swarming the soldiers and foremen, boils forcing the Egyptian magicians to roll naked in the sand for relief. Their parents used to speak longingly of palm trees. 
houses piled atop one another, streets crowded with donkey carts and long caravans of camels. Of such, this throng has no memory. They have only the hope of a new start, a nation where they will serve as masters, not slaves, a land not desiccated, but lush with pastures, crops, and a land they call their own. And Moses said, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it will go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. As you're seated, please take your Bibles and turn or scroll to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The first couple of paragraphs of Deuteronomy 6, which we've already read together, we'll take a closer look and trust God to speak to us today through these words that he used to speak to Israel so many centuries ago. The knowledge of God and God's word and God's cause in the world is always one generation from extinction. If God's people do not pass the word of God to the next generation, all's lost. The mission of God in this world fails. And knowing this, Moses summons energy for one last task before he dies, preaching Deuteronomy. His generation's all gone, and soon he will be too. And in Deuteronomy, he passes the baton. I don't know what Moses' mood was like as he spoke these words, Old people tend to be pessimistic about the ability of the younger generation to do anything right. Uh, you've heard this sort of thing from an older person. What's happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders, they disobey their parents, they ignore the law, they riot in the streets, their morals are decaying, what is to become of them? And that's right, you nod if you're one of the old people. And then you discover that this was written by Plato four centuries before Christ. Here's another one. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly 
the youth are reckless beyond all words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are disrespectful and impatient of restraint. Hesiod, eight centuries before Christ. <laughs> Perhaps Moses, too, 14 centuries or 15 centuries before Christ, had his doubts about this younger generation gathered to hear these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you, to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them, ah, he's got in view not only the current generation and the next, but the ones beyond that, that they may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel. You've heard me mention in recent weeks that there are certain themes to which Moses the preacher returns again and again. Look for the word hear as you read Deuteronomy. It comes up again and again. Listen, pay attention. It's not just make sure that you don't have any earwax keeping you from hearing what I'm saying literally but hear and heed, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. If the knowledge of God is to survive the current generation, what has to happen? If the covenant community is not to become extinct there on the east bank of the Jordan River, or if authentic Christianity is not to going to die out in the 21st century, what has to happen? And Moses' answer is that God's word must be on our hearts and in our homes. God's word must be on our hearts and in our homes. Verse 4, here, there's that word again. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, and you are not he. And neither is nation, or culture, or sex, or money, or beauty, or success, or any of the other idols that would gladly rule your heart. The Lord is to have unchallenged place on the throne of your heart. Verse 5, oh, so much more could be said about that great classic key text in the Bible, but Pastor Leo will be preaching on it in several weeks. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The first and greatest of all the commandments, Jesus said. Verse 6, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. On your heart. Now, boys and girls, I may need to explain what I did several weeks ago, that this is not the organ in your body that pumps blood throughout your body. Nor, grown-ups, does it mean the sentimental part of your personality. Valentines and Cupids have trained us to think of the heart as the center of our more tender emotions. 
But in biblical thought, both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the heart is your inner self, the non-physical part of you. Body, and then soul, spirit, heart. The words are used relatively interchangeably. The heart includes intellect, emotion, and will. We think with our heart. We feel with our heart. We decide with our heart. We desire with our heart. We will with our heart. Out of the heart comes both good and bad, Jesus said in Luke 6. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said in Matthew 12. And I would weary you if I used all of the biblical references to the heart. There are almost 800 of them. This is an important theme, not only in Deuteronomy, but in the whole Bible. Those comic strip theologians, Calvin and Hobbes, were talking about the heart, even though they didn't use the word. Calvin says, uh, do you think the real us is what we do or what's inside? And Hobbes says, I think what we do reveals what's inside. And Calvin, unsurprisingly, says, I resent that. <laughs> but Hobbes is right. What we do reveals what's inside. Author Paul Tripp remembers a family dinner where his drunken uncle started making su sexually suggestive comments to women at the table, and Paul's mother whisked him and his brother out of the house and into the car and said, boys, I want to tell you something, and I want you to never forget it. She said, there's nothing that comes out of a drunk's mouth that wasn't inside him in the first place. Behavior, what people can see, observe, is just the fruit of what's in the heart. Which is why the, effects of some, the efforts of some people to be better and to do better are so ineffectual. And Paul Tripp likens them to people whose apple trees are not bearing any apples, so instead of strategic pruning and fertilizing, they go out and staple apples to the tree. The apples are there, but the tree didn't grow them, and you know that doesn't work. These words, verse 6 again, these commands are to be on your heart. Think them, memorize them, believe them, meditate on them, love them, cherish them, praise God for them, obey them, live them. I'm glad that many in our congregation read the Bible regularly. At least that's my impression. Not all of us, no doubt, but there have been a couple of times where for a year we committed to all reading the Bible cover to cover together. And I, that's a good thing, but I hope that it is for all of us more than just moving the bookmark. I hope that we are letting this word be in our hearts on our hearts, marinating in God's word, regularly asking as we read, is there here some sin for me to confess, some example for me to follow, some promise for me to claim, some prayer that I should pray, some new habit that I should form? Got to be on our hearts. What has to happen if the knowledge of God is to survive this generation? God's word has to be on our hearts and in our homes. 
and the order is significant. God's word will never be in our homes if it isn't first on our hearts. Parents, we cannot impart what we do not possess. For a couple of hours on Sunday, we may be able to fake it, but in the home, the authenticity of our Christianity will be evident or not. Your church friends who don't look too closely may be fooled by fruit stapled on your tree, but your children will not. These commands are to be on your hearts. Impress them, verse 7, on your children. Impress them on your children. That is, impress them on your children's hearts. It's not enough that children be able to parrot verses memorized or parrot Christian answers that they know their mom and dad are expecting to hear. It's not enough that they comply with our rules. These are all good things, but God wants for them what he wants for us, moms and dads. He wants our hearts. And so this makes a difference in the way we parent. A couple of your children have a fight about using the family computer. In fact, it gets so out of hand, they break a piece of furniture in their dispute. And so you come up with a solution. You post a chart on the wall that shows who can use the computer at what hours of the day and what days of the week. And you know what? It kind of works. The tension is reduced and there are no more broken furniture. But you might have missed an opportunity to explore with your children the issues of the heart. I mean, not that it's wrong to have a rule or a chart, but if that's all you do is figure out a way to enforce compliance or to reduce the tension, you may miss an opportunity to address the issues of the heart, selfishness, pride, what it looks like to love your neighbor, including the one that shares a bunk bed with you. And there is no better place to explore the issues of the heart than in the home. <laughs> schools and Sunday schools work hard to create lifelike situations contrived, but as realistic as possible, where important issues can be explored. But you don't have to do that in the home. There, life is lived in real time, on the ground. Life begging to be questioned, evaluated, discussed in light of God's word. It's a lab for your children. And a lot of parents, Christian parents especially, will say that they are the ones primarily responsible for the training of their children. And I, for one, am glad to see in our wider culture a little pushback from parents against educators who think that it's primarily their job to indoctrinate the children. But parents, 
including Christian parents who say that. Yes, we're primarily responsible, don't always live like that. Various polls have shown that although adults say, yep, we're the ones responsible, that in fact they treat the church or the school as primarily responsible. They'll take a couple of hours most every week to go to church, usually bring their children with them, but are willing to trust the church to do all of the spiritual training of their kids. The church can play a vital part, but we're supposed to partner with parents, come alongside of moms and dads, because Moses knew that if the knowledge of God is to be passed on to the next generation, it has to be in our homes. So again, verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Talk about them when you sit down. Dads, moms, do you sit down with your kids? <laughs> of course you do when they're babies. You don't have any choice. What about when they get older? Over the years I have cited before today evidence from many different studies that show that one factor that makes a huge difference in the anticipated success of children is whether their families eat dinner together. Parents all over the spectrum, liberal and conservative, permissive and strict, who regularly sit down and eat and talk, their kids have a huge advance, a huge advantage, a leg up on others who don't have that as part of their regular weekly routine. When you walk along the road, well, if Moses were preaching today, he might say, when you're driving down the road. Is that a time to teach your children God's word and godly living? This could get just a little bit uncomfortable for some of us, myself included. There was one occasion when I said something while driving with my oldest son, who was just about four at the time, a few miles down the road. He repeated what I had said. And wild horses would not drag that out of me. If you think I'm going to tell you what I said, you can think. This is a chance to teach patience and self-control and love of neighbor while we're driving. Of course, uh, you had better make sure that you are practicing what you preach. You probably heard the story of the guy who was driving in the city, and every time they came to a red light or a stop sign, the guy behind him was just honk, honk, honk. Finally, he'd had all he could take, and when they got to one red light, he got out of the car, went back to the guy behind him and said, what are you thinking? What do you want? The guy said, I'm just reading your bumper sticker. It says, honk if you love Jesus. And When you lie down, when you get up, night and day, 24-7, the home is a lab for learning to live life under the gaze of God. 
verses 8 and 9. Tie them, that is these words of Moses. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And down through the centuries, many Jewish families have practiced this literally. Phylacteries are small boxes that contain written snippets of scripture that could be worn on the wrist or right on the forehead. Mezuzahs are uh, scripture texts in a little a decorative case nailed to the uh, entryway of the house so that coming or going, the family is reminded of the word of God. And uh, Christian families will sometimes have Bible plaques and Bible uh, posters and Bible tie pins and t-shirts and bumper stickers and good, fine. But uh, just make sure that the knowledge of God is more than words on a bumper sticker or on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. But they're really and truly on the heart. If the knowledge of God is to be passed on from this generation that Moses addresses to their children, if the knowledge of God is to be passed on from us to the next generation, God's word must be on our hearts and in our homes. In the 2004 Olympics in Athens, the Americans' 400-meter relay race, women's relay race, was their team was favored to win the gold medal. The team featured Marion Jones, a sprinter who had won four gold medals the previous Olympics. The American team was off to a strong start already. They had um, won the best time in the trial heats. Um, Jones went first, first leg. She ran her 100 meters and approached Lauren Williams, another fast runner who would uh, run the next leg. And as uh, Williams, Williams began running as Jones drew near, you've seen how relays work. You know. She starts running as Jones is approaching her. But when she reached back to receive the baton, they couldn't complete the handoff. Once, twice, Three times, Jones thrust the baton forward, and each time it missed Williams' hand. Finally, on the fourth try, they connected, but by that time, they had crossed out of the 20-yard exchange zone and were disqualified. Everybody in the stadium knew that they were the fastest team on the track, but when they couldn't complete the handoff, their race was over. Moses knows he's got 20 yards in which to pass on the baton. That's why we have Deuteronomy. And you and I, parents, we have what? 20 years to pass the baton to a child before he or she's on his or her own. As important as it is for this generation to set the pace by living authentic Christian lives, at some point a handoff has to be made. That generation takes it and runs with it. 
That handoff isn't as easy as it looks. It takes thousands of practice runs. Well, let's pray. For every parent still in the parenting phase of life, Father, I pray this grace that they might not only run well, run fast, but pass the baton successfully to those who follow after. We who know your word know how the story ends. We know that Christianity the true knowledge of God is not going to die out, that there will be faithful Christians in the last generation at the return of the king. But we don't want to take that knowledge as an excuse for sloppy living. So by the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to preach what he preached, help us to hear and to heed for our sakes, for the sake of our children, and for the sake of our Lord Jesus, in whose name and for whose sake primarily we pray, amen.